Let's introduce ourselves to Calvin, and then we'll turn Calvin loose after my brief introduction here. Uh, I'm Alan Latta, pastor of Generations Church. Nice to meet you all face-to-face -face here. I'm Jan Finch. I am uh, a Stephen minister at Acton United Methodist Church, and I also am chair of the Comanche Peak Coalition for Mental Health. I'm Fred Orcutt. This is my wife, Joan. Hi. We're with the Hood County Prayer Task Force. And I'm James Long with Granbury Gideon Camp. Brenda Church, the associate pastor of First Presbyterian here in Granbury. Good morning. Morning. Where are you from, Faye? Well, I'm a member of Stonewater Church, but I'm just an interesting citizen that goes to everything in Granbury because I love this county and this city. I'm trying yeah, to make great. it even better. Great. All right. Let's dive in here. And if we have time at the end, those that join us can introduce themselves. I just want to begin by reading a little scripture, just a little bit, I'm not going to preach or anything, but um, Matthew 24 begins with Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple, and his disciples ask him three questions. When will these things be, which refers to the destruction of the temple, and 40 years later it happened, just as he predicted. Uh, what will be the sign of your return or of your coming? He had told them that he was leaving and would be coming back. He was going to prepare a place for them, be coming back. So in my theology, we're still waiting for that part of the prediction to be fulfilled. And of the end of the age. And to me, that there was an end of the age for that particular manifestation of Jerusalem, but there's the end of the world coming that um, is connected to his return. So that question is kind of a two-part question. And so uh, he begins by answering the last question first. The last shall be first. And I just want to read uh, two or three verses that are very crucial to the day in which we live. Um, he says, Take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come saying, I am Christ. Wars and rumors are wars. He said, Nation will rise against nation. And we see that the United Nations is an attempt to remedy that issue. But the word the Lord used for nation here is ethnos. <laughs> ethnic group will rise against ethnic group. So ethnic conflict is something the United Nations is not going to be able to fix. When it's within the borders of a country, uh, they can come in, but they're seen as foreign powers. And, uh, you know, I've seen their forces in Haiti, and they do a pretty poor job. So we've got a problem. Nation rising against nation. Uh, talks about many will be offended. I think sometimes we live in the OSA, the offended states of America. And he said, lawlessness will abound. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And my whole life, I kind of saw those both as going hand in hand, you know, because I become lawless, I no longer love people. Now I kind of see it in two things. Because lawlessness abounds, believers who don't believe in lawlessness are going to be tempted to allow their heart of love to grow cold. And we've got to guard our hearts against this. If lawlessness abounds somewhere, we've got to love. Those are people Jesus died for. We can't let our love grow cold. And uh, he goes on to say, he who endures to the end shall be saved and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Then the end will come. So we're living in that day of the gospel of the kingdom needing to go into all the nations. But if our love grows cold, we will not be fruitful. We'll become part of the problem. If we don't learn to bridge gaps between people with whom maybe we are at odds or who is odds with us or between people who are at odds with each other. And that's the purpose of this talk today is to help equip us to bridge the divide, because we've got a job to do. The gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world as a witness, and we don't want to let our love grow cold. All right? So that's the day in which we live, and Dr. Calvin Lawrence has been involved his whole life in higher education. He's been a citizen of Hood County for 10 years, and his wife and son moved here with him 10 years ago, and we are just delighted to have him. I got something in the mail from him a couple months ago that got my attention, and then the column he wrote in the paper, which was like a word to the nation, uh, really got my attention. And so listen uh, for what he says that will be beneficial to the nation, but also listen how to apply it to our personal lives and to our local location. So Calvin, don't dumb anything down, just, just tell it, brother. 
Dr. Okay. Calvin Lawrence, the floor is yours. The rest of us, let's mute our mics if we can. Well, thank you, uh, Alan. Um, folks, I'm, I'm very happy to be able to share with you today. I'm hoping that you'll be able to hear. Can everybody hear me okay? Uh-huh. Uh, I'm hoping you'll be able to hear what I have to say. And I know I, I, I kind of feel rushed because I know we've got a lot of things to talk about, but I know there are certain things that I need to kind of address. And some of it are kind of personal things are about me. And then the other things are about, you know, what we can do with regards to the racial divide and, and, and uh, maybe some, some talking points. And I know I won't get through everything today. Someone, someone a lot older and wiser told me, you know, hopefully what will happen is we'll have some reoccurring dialogue because that's what I really want to have happen. And that's really what needs to happen. And Alan started off with uh, scripture from Matthew. I have a piece from Matthew that's kind of embedded in my thing. It's funny how, you know, it, the, the, the word, the, the, the word, the Lord works. Uh, he will uh, prompt people to do certain things. You don't know how this thing's going to come together, but it's coming together. And so uh, we talked the other day. I was really excited that Alan would ask me to even do this because he doesn't know me that well. So he's taking a, a risk uh, kind of in terms of, you know, is this guy like a, you know, is he militant? Is he uh, adjutant? Is he, you know, what kind of guy is this? And all you can get, maybe what he had was from what that brochure had. And that's not a whole lot. And then maybe what I, what I uh, presented uh, via Hood County News. That's not a whole lot. So I'm real appreciative that he would trust me uh, with you folks. I know some other folks may be joining in that he would trust me to do this. We talk, and I'll I'll hit this real quick, and then I'll go into my thing uh, about you know this issue is is so big that if someone had the solution, they would have already given it out, uh, and that person would probably be a billionaire by now because it would solve all of these world problems, but we know that's not it. And then when I went back to the word and Alan said something earlier, and really the key to this y'all is, you know, the Lord embeds these things and it's in his word. And the key is really love. And now the application of how we love, that's the, the, the nitty gritty. And that's how you guys as leaders, and I'm going to assume, I'm not assuming everybody here is a leader, even, uh, uh, the vocal, uh, if you're uh, uh, just a uh, concerned citizen and you're not a minister, you're a leader. Uh, you're trying to do some things to try to help your community. We want to head off some things to try to help our community. We want to do some things. We want to be proactive. You know, Covey always talks about, I'm an educator, so you, you'll hear this in my deal, always talks about being proactive. He's got those seven habits. One of the things is to be proactive, to go and to be kind of in front of things. If you you wait until stuff happens, Sometimes that's not a good thing if you are you know, reactive at the end. And so uh, we want to be proactive. We want to be, we really want to follow the model of Jesus. And, and so I'm going to start with a couple of things. Uh, Ecclesiastes, which is starting to become a, a favorite book of mine. I didn't like this book years ago, y'all. And then uh, I've gotten into it. And there's a verse in there that's, 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 that really defines my mother or what she used to tell us what she tells us now, she's 97. And so a lot of the wisdom that I have really comes from her. So I'm going to give her the credit for this one, but Ecclesiastes 11.4, and I'm going to paraphrase it because if you, you read it, there's a couple of things it talks about, but this is really what it boils down to. If you want perfect conditions before you start, you'll never get anything done. Now that was kind of a model of hers because we didn't always have things perfect when I was growing up. And that, that's a good segue into my personal life. Didn't always have things perfect, but she, she would just push you out there and you say, you got to get going. You got to do it. Uh, whether it was education, whether it was athletics, whether it was my Christian walk, you know, you got to get in and you got to, you got to go for it. And you're not going to always have, you usually won't have perfect conditions. We don't have perfect conditions right now, but we got to go for it. So what I'm going to do, to begin, and I know this is going to take some time, but I, I need to do this, is give you my story in three parts, who I am, and then I'm going to hit on some pieces. I think I'll have enough time. I'm going to watch my watch and be cognizant of that. My wife says I'm long-winded. The older I get, the longer I talk. 
but I know I need to talk about this. So this was a revelation the other day in church. I see Kevin Spencer online. Um, Kevin's my pastor. This was a revelation in church. And the Lord told me, this is how you need to start this thing. You need to talk about your personal uh, life. You need to talk about your professional life. And then you need to talk about your personal relationship with Christ. Because this is kind of all what's brought me to this place where I'm at right now. And Alan said, my, my whole life's been somewhat dealing with diversity. I've always talked about it. I've always been an advocate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that credit to the Lord and my mom and my dad, because they really were advocates of, you know, all people are created. You know, we all have the same needs and wants. So I'm going to just jump into my personal life. Born in 1959. I have a tendency to tease people. Now I've seen seven decades. I know there are some folks here that will say, well, I've seen more than that. But seven decades is neat because I love that number seven. It's the perfection number. And so I, and I've, I've lived that long. I came from a family of four. My mom and dad, blue-collar workers. My mom uh, had an associate. She was a nurse. She did that, what they used to call an L. LPN thing, and then my dad was just a, a civil, civil, civic worker with the government. Never uh, did anything past his high school uh, uh, diploma. Uh, my family, all of my family valued education, I, and I'm backing up a little bit, and I'm originally from Virginia, so I came from this area where there was a, it was, it was a shipyard, Navy, Norfolk, Norfolk, Virginia, Portsmouth, Virginia. If you know anything about it, close to the water. That's why I'm a seafood lover. That's why Alan and I, we, we like to eat. I love to eat. And so uh, I'm from that type of uh, background and my parents were great cooks, both of them. Uh, I married a Texan. This is the, this is my joke. So, and everybody will relate to this. If you marry a Texan, you don't leave Texas. I came here intending to go back to Virginia. was only going to do a couple of years of study at TCU got uh, mentored by a gentleman, stayed one more year. He introduced me to my wife and the rest is history. Never have gone back other than, you know, I visit a lot because my mom is still there and, and most of my family. So that's what caused me to become a, I guess you could call it a naturalized Texan because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't grow up here, but I get, my wife will say I got here as fast as I could to get her, to find her. So I married her. We've been married for 29 years. I have a son who's 19, went to school here at what used to be Happy Hill, which is now called it North Central Texas Academy. And now he's attending uh, Abilene Christian University. And so uh, my time in Texas was Fort Worth, Crowley, and then Granbury, the last 10. And I, I, I'm going to have to change that because October the 31st will make 11 years that we've been here in, in Granbury. Uh, my professional life. Uh, I started out early in my uh, thinking in terms of what I wanted to do with my life. I had a counselor who told me, uh, and I love history. This is, a, this is a big part of who I am. So I'm a historian by nature, and I probably should have major, majored in it, but I had a counselor who told me, forget the lady's name, she told me the only thing you can do with history is be a lawyer or a politician. And I didn't want to be either one of those. So I went the route of my mom was in healthcare, and I thought about the PT type of thing. And then my math wasn't good enough. So I could translate all that over into physical education, kinesiology and coaching because I had great coaches and they they were great role models for me. So I went that route. Um, so I taught when I got out of school and I coached at all levels. I was I was a high school coach, but I taught PE at the elementary and middle school levels. And then I had this epiphany one day. I needed to get do something else. And the epiphany was, or the epiphany was, someone who was in criminal justice said, "Well, everybody can't do what you do." That was an epiphany for me because everybody can't be in education. Everybody can't teach the little ones or the big ones or whatever. Uh, the difficult ones, the, the, the at-risk kids, which is kind of my, I really love that group, uh, the people that nobody wants to work with. So 
I had to go to the graduate school. And long story short, that was that's what brought me to Texas. And had a mentor and whatnot. And then that mentor, the same mentor who introduced me, he's a great man, he and his wife, introduced me to Amanda. Uh, they were pushing me to get into administration because I, I thought I was going to be a coach for the rest of my life. Had great coaches that, you know, they retired as coaches and you can make a career out of that. But I thought, you know, hey, we had this thing going on at the time and uh, the Star Telegram, uh, and this is way back, and I'll, I'll, I'll take you back a little bit. This was uh, 1990, because we married in 91. So it was around 93, 1993. Uh, the papers uh, uncovered how many districts in the Fort Worth Metroplex area had African-Americans who were leaders. And there were very few. There were very few assistant principals, and there were almost no principals. And in some districts, there were no African-American leaders. So I was, I was kind of edged to go into that route just because I just, it was, there was a need. And uh, I, I knew I had some, uh, I had some administrators that weren't very good, and I knew I could do at least that good. And so I thought, well, if there's a need, then maybe that's where that we need to go next. And we did. Uh, that moved me along in terms of my uh, educational career, in terms of getting a, a post uh, master's degree at Texas Women's and then going on to Baylor to get a doctorate. Uh, and then I, I went into administration from that point on. But also when I finished that doctorate, it opened up an opportunity for me to go to Charlton as a professor. And that's really what brought me to Granbury. I needed to be between Fort Worth and Fort Worth and uh, Stephenville. So uh, spent that time, was a professor, a director. I spent some time at Ranger uh, Junior College as a dean for the at-risk, at-risk, the, the remedial students. And now I'm working as a consultant. And I've just been newly appointed to be on my alma mater, uh, James Madison University in Virginia, they've elected me to be part of their diversity task force. So I'm real excited about that, what we can do from a distance. Uh, personal relationship with Christ. I came to Jesus at 10. There was a, a kid who was a little bit, he, well, he was a light years ahead of me in terms of uh, his relationship, but he was just a little bit older than I. And I just watched him and I said, you know, there's something different about this kid, something different. And, you know, I've been going to, you know, how you go to Sunday school and Bible Bible school back then was full two weeks and, you know, you know, a whole lot of stuff going on. But he convinced me more than anything that this was the right path to go on and and and, and get my life. Back in those days, they preached those fire and brimstone uh, uh, sermons. You, you guys, some of y'all will remember those. You don't get that much anymore. But I, I became a, a, a follower of Christ more so because of the, the way this kid walked he had a walk that was like what christ you would want to have and so anyway that was a big thing for me i had another epiphany that i need to share in terms of diversity uh later on when i was in college and i had nothing to do on a sunday morning i, I wasn't going to church that morning i'll have to give a confession but i went down to the tv lounge to watch a program and the minister, his name was Frederick K.C. Price, and he had a program on back in the 80s. And the thing that got me, although the message was great, what caught me was his church was diverse. I had never seen that before because I'll give you my background. So we grew up Baptist and uh, Black Baptist, a little bit different than Southern Baptist. But uh, we had no uh, Anglo members, really had no Hispanic members, nothing in our church except for black uh, folk. And this church was multi-diverse. Not only did it have black people, a black minister who led them, but he had, you know, a white white congress. And it wasn't just like one or two members. He, it was at least somewhere around 30% of his church. And then on top of that, he had another 10% or so who were Hispanic. So it, it it, it dawned on me, this is the way churches need to look. This is the way it's supposed to be. And I don't know if I've ever, in, in my mind, I've never gone back, because we've been several places when I when I married my wife, uh, 
she was Pentecostal, I was Baptist, so we kind of had to make that uh, merger. You guys, some of y'all are smiling, you know what I'm talking about. So we had to make that merger. I, I had had some experience with uh, Methodist Church when I did my undergrad work because they had me teaching Sunday school and they didn't care if I was Baptist. They just were happy that I was a uh, warm blooded body excited about Christ. And so I got the method, method methodology from the Methodist Church. And I had this now I had to make this bridge divide between Pentecostals. So we did that for a while and we've had other experiences. What I'll give you background too on my experiences. When we get to a church, we usually don't just sit. We want to work. So I've, I've got a musical background. I can't sing like I used to now. But uh, my background was always in music. I was always in the choir or in a praise team or whatever. And because I worked with children in school, of course, here we go. I had to work with the youth at the churches. Now, you can't see the gray hairs because it's all clean up here. But I guess I felt like, you know, at a certain point, the youth part of me is gone. I don't think it'll ever leave me. Uh, but uh, I, those are ministries that have always been close to my heart, those two. And when I'm in a church, I'm, I'm, I'm always close to those two. Uh, that's, that gives you a little bit of background about me from the personal, the professional, and then my personal relationship, which all kind of diverges into diversity for me, which makes me think in terms of uh, what can we do? Wherever I've been, whether it's at work, school, uh, wherever, and, and of course, church, I'm thinking about moving that needle to where why are people not together and we got to get together and we have to bridge that divide. I had a, there was a minister who uh, I uh, served under years ago and his thing was, if things aren't happening, what you're going to have to do is you have to walk across the room. You're going to have to be intentional about it and you're going to have to make a difference that way. And so what I've, what I've learned is, you know, sometimes people are well-meaning, but they're a little bit afraid and they may not know. And so sometimes you just have to take that first step. Sometimes you have to do, it's kind of like us guys. I see guys, they're, they're males and females here. And sometimes the guy has to go across that room to make that first date, you know, that make, and I, I know that I'm, uh, and, and you wouldn't know it by me talking right now, I'm an introvert naturally, but I know that when, I, when there's a need and there's a call, I have to go outside of myself. But it makes me better because I have to go outside of myself. My educational piece, when I talk about education, uh, if there's a need for kids, it's helped me to be a community leader or civic person, much more so than I would ever do myself because I'd rather just sit at home. I hate to hear true confessions again, uh, Alan, uh, and uh, just watch TV and just be my own person. But sometimes you have to do more. And you're called to do more. And, and what I'm feeling right now is the need to do more. So my first talking point is America is segregated. Uh, whether we want to admit it or not, we're still segregated. Now, we've moved the needle. And I had a conversation with a group not too long ago. And we talked about where we were in the 50s and 60s and 70s during the time that I came up uh, while I was coming up. I mean, things are things are a whole lot different than they were. We moved the needle, but America's still not where it needs to be. And there are places in America where we're not where we're supposed to be. We're still segregated. You know, one of the mentions that I made was about churches. Why are churches the way they are? And traditionally, maybe maybe it's programming. Maybe it's the way we thought. Maybe whatever happened years ago is still happening in a lot of places maybe there are more churches that are integrated and, and and you know we're in a pocket where there aren't a lot of african americans more hispanics but people need a place to go and and need a place to where they can feel where they're accepted and that's important neighborhoods uh it's not going to happen be an issue maybe here but in certain parts of the we could talk about fort worth and dallas where the neighborhoods are you go into a neighborhood and the neighborhood is still predominantly one, one ethnic group. And why is that? So America is segregated. And that's a, that's a point uh, that we could talk about. Uh, the second 
bullet is it comes down to economics. And, and, and this has been a battle for years. Uh, you know, you could talk about economics in the 60s and, and there were certain leaders who would talk about two things we need to do in order to move people forward and move this ethnic group forward, African-Americans. And economics want to be able to, to gain wealth and to be able to have financial independence. That's a big issue. It's still an issue. It's still a barrier in some cases. Uh, rich, successful black people are anomalies to some, to some of us. Uh, you, you'll see them. Oh, I, I know what I used the other day. I talked about a TV show that some people are familiar with. And because of that person who's coming in disrepute, Bill Cosby, we don't talk about the Cosby show a whole lot anymore, but that was a show that was sort of groundbreaking because you had a black doctor and a black lawyer and they were prominent. They were successful. And you don't see that. The successful people, there's a bridge and divide. Most of the successful people that we see that are African-American are either entertainers or, or sports figures. And so we look at them as anomalies, that they're not the norm for our group. Uh, Decision-making and economic freedom. So I'm gonna put those two together because decision-making could, it doesn't necessarily have to be political, but it can be political. It can be because you vote, you're able to, to make things happen. We know that during the 60s and during uh, the civil rights movement of the 60s, there were a lot of political pieces and a lot of legislation that was passed in order to move people forward and to move the country closer together, hopefully. And some of it was, some of it worked, some of it maybe not so much, but African-Americans have to be a part of the decision-making process. We have to be at the table, but we have to uh, be a part of the, what decisions are being made because you, may, you might look at it a different way than I, than I look at it. But it's nice when I'm at the table and I can give my input. And sometimes career-wise, I've been in places where they were accepting of my input and it makes me feel a whole lot better. And other times it was not so much that way. Uh, and of course, again, economic freedom. Economic freedom and decision-making kind of go hand in hand, side by side. It's funny, I, and I, I remember this point when I was watching something on, on Jackie Robinson the other, other day. And you think about his time period. Uh, he broke a color barrier in 47, uh, the baseball color barrier, which helped to move the movement a little bit further along, into, if, you, if you understand what I mean, in terms of racial acceptance. But even back then, they were talking about economic freedom and decision-making, and that we have to be a part of that. We have to be at the table. So it's not something new, it's, it's like it's, it, keeps coming back again and again, over and over, and we know it's important. Okay, these next four points, I'm going to deal with them together, and I have a question for you guys uh, on the first one, uh, and they were given to me through, through a conversation, and I thought, you know, these are great talking points, so, let, so I wanted to deal with these, and I'll run through them first, and then I'm going to come back to the first one, and I'm going to see if I can get some, uh, you know, uh, maybe a couple of answers or maybe at least you have you start thinking about some things. So the first one is hate and ignorance, which we're going, we're dealing with right now. Uh, hate and ignorance is, is the first one. Hypocritical or hypocrisy is the second issue. Letting people in, I'll explain that one a little bit when I come back to it, have to let people in. And then the third one is problematic thinking, which I kind of talk, say, um, I've referred to a little bit earlier. Those are four points. I'll go back to hate and ignorance. Hate and ignorance. So the other day I was had this question posed to me. I'm going to pose it to, they, they asked me, well, why don't you pose it to uh, ministers and people of the clergy and see how they feel about this one? So I'm, I'm going to do that. So which one is harder to crack? What you say, because I have my ideas from a from an educator standpoint, but I wanted to see if I could get a little bit of a uh, from around the room. So hate or ignorance, which one is hard to crack? And if you crack one, can you affect the other? Think about it. 
anyone anyone want to uh i know we're all muted but if anyone wants to chime in this is a great time to do it i would say ignorant Janet. i think hate is harder hate is perpetuated through families um bigotry is perpetuated through families i'm a social worker I've studied this yes, and i think that you can educate but you can't change some of the family patterns that have happened Okay. Uh, I would agree with the ignorance because if you get enlightened, hopefully that'll change your, your mind. It goes along with the problematic thinking. Uh, if you think wrong, you act wrong. Okay, Fred. Anybody else? Brenda. I think anger is a product of fear and fear is a product of ignorance and hatred, of course, comes from anger. So. I think that if we um, if we try to find a way to explain to people the problem, then they will um, naturally soften in their hatred and their anger. Okay. All right. Anybody else? That's good. I, I think it's I think it's ignorance as in the lack of knowledge, and so uh, a part of this bridge is me getting myself more knowledge, and that requires walking across the room. I think it's ignorance of truth, which goes along with knowledge. You have to have knowledge to know what the truth is, but you're not going to change until you believe that the knowledge you have is true and applies to you. I believe ignorance is the hardest because hate, it's easy to hate something that you don't know much about, but the more you learn about it, perhaps the harder it becomes to hate it because you know more about it. So ignorance first and then hate. I know I've I got the wheels turning in here because I, I see some other people looking. Anyone else, Kevin? So I've thought a lot about this ever, and we've had men's groups where you spoke and we talked about, um, I've thought a lot about the in, introspective aspect of, it, you know, kind of being afraid to admit that there is hate towards a person or a group of people and I could be way off base, but I think that I'm able to more look at ignorance at being afraid of being ignorant or not wanting to think that you're ignorant about something. That's the part that I feel like um, the Lord does a work in my heart about the, the hate that I may not be able to even put my finger on the ignorance part is something that I'm able to say, I don't, I'm not going to be ignorant in an area. I'm going to listen to things like what you're saying. I'm going to go across the room and I'm going to be less ignorant about the needs and the hurt today than I was yesterday. And then as that opens up, there's no reason to hate. There's no room for hate. God, I say it all the time. As a believer, God's love has been shed abroad in our heart to give us the ability to love all creation regardless of how we've been brought up if we're willing. And so to me, I'm, I'm looking at ignorance and I'm like, okay, I can do something about that. The hate that I'm afraid to admit to, or do I even know that it's in there or that I was raised in it subconsciously that just sends me into a tailspin to think, oh, I've, how can I control something that was put into me and I don't even know about it? You know? Um, so, that's a long answer to say that I'm going after ignorance full bore and saying, I'm not going to be ignorant in this area. I'm going to learn and find out what's needed. And then from that help. <clears throat> I like, I like how you put it. I'm going I'm to piggyback on that uh, last statement you made. Uh, you're going after ignorance and you know, okay. So you guys probably know where I'm going. Cause I'm a educator, right? So, and I'll, I'm gonna use a couple of examples if I can. Uh, and I'm not an expert, Janet. I'm not an expert in this, but I'm an expert in uh, ignorance versus knowing something. And uh, so if I have to crack one of those two eggs, whatever you wanna call them, I'm probably gonna go after ignorance. And I'm gonna tell you why. Uh, and I'll use the, the little babies with uh, maybe the babies. If you've seen those pictures where you have a black baby and you have a white baby and they're just hugging each other and they're just loving on each other and they don't know anything. And they, and then something happens later, 
and whatever it is, a separation or whatever. And maybe it's because of something that somebody said or whatever. And um, they separate. Why is it? Why is, do we get the hatred later? Because I don't think it comes out of the womb. And so uh, I went where I have been and where I have worked, I work with people to try to give them uh, some, some enlightenment or try, or try to educate because I think if I can do it on that side, I'll go, okay, so why? Uh, I'll, use, I'll, I'll use an example. And I, I've talked about my historical background or, you know, a boy growing up in Virginia, 35 minutes from Jamestown, two minutes from Williamsburg uh, and, and all that history, I can't help but not go back into and talk about from a historical standpoint. So one of the things that troubles me is this denigration of the, the, the statues and the, and the and monuments and whatnot because those, those particular people are assumed to have this kind of a mentality and then we don't look at the context under which they are. Uh, and I think about maybe, it's not in all cases, but maybe if some of the people who are so upset could understand the history behind why and what happened. And then also, I had a friend who told me that in Germany, they don't do it that way. They, they don't destroy the monuments because they want you to remember, they want you to remember what happened so that you don't forget so that you don't repeat what happened in Nazi Germany in those times. And, 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 and so it makes sense to me that I'm not worshiping the monument per se, but remembering the things that happened and how we overcame and, and those kinds of things. And, and, I'm, and I'm a historian, so I'm, I'm biased. Uh, I, I probably feel a, a lot more uh, angst when I see a, a, a Confederate statue decapitated than most folks maybe because I'm a historian and I'm, I'm looking at preserving it. Now, how we preserve it, that's a, that's a whole nother issue. But uh, I think ignorance to me is an easier nut to crack than this hatred piece. And I think, I think I may have been Fred. I think if I can get you to understand why, where my perspective is and why I'm feeling the way I feel, then maybe I can overcome the hatred. Because I, I believe that a lot of folks have that hatred because they don't understand, because they're lacking the knowledge. So that's where I'm at. That may not be the best way to do it. It may be the other way, but I'll, I'll give you my two cents. And I really feel like when it comes to this issue with African-Americans and understanding, you know, why is there angst? Why is there this uh, frustration? And why is it coming at this time? We can't be hypocritical. And this is on both sides, folks. And if I'm going to be one of those people that try to be a bridge builder, then I've got to talk to African-Americans as well as uh, Caucasians, as well as Hispanics, as well as whoever who will listen, because we cannot be hypocritical. Hate is hate. And if you hate people, then that's wrong. We're talking, we're, 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 we, we as Christians ought to look at it from a perspective of love and there's no hate in, in our, in our perspective or there shouldn't be. Uh, oh, it's a good time to throw in this, this Martin Luther King quote that I almost forgot. He, King said this, he said, darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. That's scriptural. And so we, we have to use love. We have to be willing to, uh, uh, there's a couple of things. We have to be willing to, to, to understand someone's angst, but yet be able to be open enough to say, receive it and then, and, and, and then, and then let's work with it and dialogue through it. Uh, letting people in is, in is a big one. And it's, it's on the African-American side. Is that if I'm an African-American and maybe I'm doing that right now, uh, and I'm upset about issues that have pertain to my culture, my, my ethnicity, my own personal standing. I've got to be able to allow people to know what I'm feeling. I can't ball it up. I can't keep it among just African-Americans. 
I have to talk about it. I have to be able to share and let people in. Uh, there was a great conversation with an interracial couple uh, a while back. I won't even name the two people because both of them were star athletes, star entertainers, and and then they came together and they, they were talking about how if the one person doesn't share, then the other person, I, I can't I can't help him or I can't help her. But if you allow me to, to be a part of it, then I can do that. And that's that the onus is on is on us for that. Then that last point, which I had was problematic thinking. There's some thinking that all of us probably have. We, we talk about we, we have these biases that we grew up with. And I know my mom did a really good job with me in terms of shielding me from some of the angst that was there in the 60s. As I was growing up, I didn't see as many of the issues, but I can look back and I can remember segregated pieces that were still there. There were the bathrooms with the colored bathrooms and the other. I remember that, but I didn't, you know, how you are as a, as a youth, you're not thinking through it. And then mom kind of moved us through that. She didn't let, allow it to, to hamper us. So there's some problematic thinking. We've been programmed to think a certain way about people, about issues that we've got to work through that process too, that we can, we can improve on that. Uh, I mentioned before some athletes and maybe I, I'm, I'm a stickler for Jackie Robinson because of how, port, how important he was in terms of moving the movement, but he did. Uh, sports is a platform. I'll, I use him because I mean, even after he finished his career, he was an advocate up until the day he died in terms of trying to move the, the pendulum further towards unity and, 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 and equality and everything else that you'd want to want to call. Um, you have to educate yourself. If you don't educate yourself, and, and this is a difficult time because when I was talking to a couple of people uh, about this, uh, it's a it's a it's, it's a firebrand in terms of you don't know if you're going to say the wrong thing, and we're in this politically correct era where if you say one thing, then people run with that. But you do have to stay abreast of the issues and what's going on. I, the, the other day and a while back, I wasn't aware of what was going on in Oregon because they weren't covering it, and I've got to look for things that are happening so that I know what's happening and why. And you try to find out why they're happening, and then you try to have discussions. But you do the best you can to educate yourself before you you take on or tackle that the issue. And I think you'll you'll be better prepared when you do walk across the room. Um, ground zero is when you do engage with people. And if you're if you have it together, you're together. I had a I've had two teachers talk to me about. How do I go back to my classrooms now? We're going to have issues this year when we start talking. How do I do this? And we've already began the, the dialogue in terms of educating yourself in terms of these issues, what's going on, why people are so upset, and why right now this seems to be, um, this seems to be a tipping point. And, and while I'm thinking about it, I went and as soon as the movement, and I'm going to talk about it just a little bit, um it was initiated i went back and i bought a book that someone had been trying to get me to read for a while and it's called the tipping point by malcolm gladwell and if you read that book and some of you are smiling i, I hope some of you have read it uh if you read that book it helps explain pandemics and it helps explain movements and so it is it is it's almost uh clairvoyant in terms of the, the guy kind of forecast some things, but he did really good and he has a good way of, of putting it into um, easy to read. I'll put it that way. Easy to read, easy, easy to understand, but it's a great book. If you want to start, we're talking about educating yourself about this issue and why we've reached a tipping point. Cause it's kind of strange. I mean, you, you think about um, people getting killed and, and, and students getting, uh, uh, being uh, accosted and things that are happening. And you say, well, those things have happened all the time, right? Why is it that all of a sudden right now we've got this, this we've, we reached this climax. It's almost like we've reached a point where no more, no more, no more. Uh, the tipping point helps 
to get you to in a framework to where you can start thinking about that's what happened. And we've gotten to this point where we're at a tipping point. And if the church is the church that I think it can be, we can be at the forefront of making sure that things go in the direction that they need to go. Um, I'm always hopeful. Uh, this is one of my bullets, and, and I'll use this whenever I talk. I'm always hopeful because I come from a Christian perspective. So our perspective is hope. Alan led off with that, that verse and chapter in, in Matthew where the, the end is for, foretold. But you, you all know, and we are as, as Christians, you, you guys know, we're not called to uh, put our heads in the sand like an ostrich and just wait until he comes. Our job is to work until he comes. And so it's kind of like, and, I, and I, I did not mince words when I think I wrote this in my article. Uh, it's kind of like a life mission now that if my last legacy is that we're going to fight this fight, I don't know, know that it's winnable. Uh, I, I don't know that I should say this, but I'll say it. Uh, it may not be where we have this peace that we need to have until he comes again. But until he comes, we're called to fight. So I'm hopeful that as many who will join with me that will fight this battle the way we need to fight it by walking across the room, by, by holding hands, by, uh, by giving the love and, 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 and showing those actions that Jesus did during this time. So this next one is a big one. And it's the Black Lives Matter, which has been an issue for folks because of the way it's portrayed and the way you have these entities doing certain things and some of these things are negative. And I've, and I've taken on Black Lives Matter as a mantra, and I don't have a problem with it, but I know there's problems with it. So I'm going to explain it this way, uh, and then I'll explain it through the word. Uh, there has not been a movement where you don't have fractions and fringes that are doing things that aren't right and acceptable. And I can go back to the 60s. I can't go back to the Revolutionary War, but Gladwell did several things. And then it prompted me to remember there all the Americans who fought the Revolutionary War were not for separating from Great Britain. You had fractions. You had people who were still trying to help King George win and you had Tories and whatnot. So you're always going to have people who are doing things that aren't along with the movement. In the 60s, there were fractions in the movement who didn't want to have nonviolence, who wanted to move in a different direction. And, you know, I'll credit Dr. King and, and, and several others who were able to keep that movement fluent, and he was the face of it, but there were other people who wanted things to go a different way. There's never going to be a movement where everything's going to be perfect and calm, but the impetus of the movement is to move people along and to, and to bridge the gap. And here's what I wanted to definitely share before I, I run out of time. Uh, I had a young lady explain this one to me, a young Anglo female. And I said, I'm going to use that. And I'll, I want your permission to use it. So she said, if you say, if black lives matter, then all lives matter. Use the parable of the lost sheep. And it helped a couple of people. And I said, let me, let me try that. Let's see how that works. Because if you go back to Matthew 18, and it's Matthew 18, 10 through 14, but I'll go Matthew 18 and 12. It's like he tells this parable, if he's going to leave the 99 to go after the one. Well, think in terms of black lives being the one, that we're going after that one, and we're going to bring that one back into the fold. If black lives matter, then all lives matter. Uh, so the focus right now is on the black lives. And the focus with the, the, the 99 in that, in that parable was he didn't love those other sheep any less, but it was, a 90, it was that one that was in trouble, not the 99. So he left the 99 to go after that one. And what we're trying to do right now with Black Lives Matter is to go after that one. The, the African-American population, the people who are having issues that, that, that have needs, that we're trying to bring this thing a little bit closer together. There we are, the one. Um, it's funny because in that, in that verse, and this is, that was Jesus talking, 
So there, there ought to be some credence to that as well, because it's one thing for Paul to say it, another thing for someone else to say it. But when Jesus speaks, there's there's a little bit more power added to it. I think I better maybe start right there, Alan. I've got a few more things. And then there's a, a group of things. If I were invited to go somewhere and to talk to a group, I have a, a kind of a seven-tier piece that I'll start out with dialogue and definitions, then we'll get down to, okay, now how can we how can we continuously improve our organization, our leadership, and how do we assess that over time? And, and those are the pieces that I wanted, if I can get a chance to talk to folks, that's how I'll do it. But this was a good opportunity for me to just kind of give you a little bit about myself and about some issues that are pertinent. Didn't get to all of them, but there's a lot more. And that's, that's my teaser for getting another invite. Quote by Arthur Ashe, start where you are, use what you have and do what you can. So everybody here in this Zoom meeting, you have a place where you can start. You start where you are, you use whatever you have, your connections, I'm one of them now, so you got me, and then do what you can. And so um, that's my uh, challenge to you, you leaders. Thank you. Thank you so much, Calvin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Are you available for Sunday school classes, Saturday morning seminars? I'm available for Sunday school classes, Saturday morning seminars, Wednesdays. Yes, I am. I'm available. I, I would love to do trainings uh, with staff, with, um, with churches, um, whatever. I, I'm, I'm willing to have some dialogue. Can I say uh, I appreciate, Calvin, uh, your to spend the time with us today and Thank giving you, me some good food for thought. All this reminds me of a program years ago by uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, Life is Worth Living, talked about tolerance. He said, we tolerate evil, we love people, and hate is evil. So we have to, to not tolerate the evil, right. but love everyone. That's good. That's good. Thank you guys so much. Let's do this again. Give me feedback on that. Bless you. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. Thank you.